Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. This series is sponsored by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Piecework, and Handwoven magazines. Find us online and subscribe at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Anne Marrow. So I'm Ann Marrow, a co-founder of Long Thread Media, and I'm sitting down for my very first podcast with Sarah Root. Sarah, would you tell us about yourself? Um, many years ago, I was a zoologist. Uh, I've been several things since, but now I think of myself as a spinner who weaves. I am intrigued by the history of spinning and weaving and textiles in general, and I love sharing my interest in that with well, fundamentally, anybody who will sit still long enough for me to talk to them. <laughs> and that is how we first met. And lately, I've been seeing you doing a lot of different uh, stitching on textiles. And can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, one of the things I concluded, we can talk about that later, textiles are precious. Even, even things that you buy at Walmart can be precious if they have meaning for you. And so rather than throw things away when they have a hole in them, I decided I would learn how to mend them. And I then realized the, the, the visible mending thing has become a big thing lately, and it, it works. Mending is an interesting thing to do philosophically, and it also adds many values to the textile that you're mending. It can make it more beautiful. You can change the character of the textile and perhaps even make it more useful. And you can make it more significant emotionally by putting parts of yourself into that textile. So I'm, I'm entranced by it, absolutely entranced by it. And you've seen that as I sit and stitch endlessly. And you're stitching in all kinds of different... Um, I would say modes. So you're using some Japanese-inspired things, and you're doing some freehand work and some twill. So where do you find that you're getting your ideas, and how do you choose um, how you're going to stitch on a piece of fabric? That is a really interesting question, because it was one I was asking myself this morning. I'm currently trying to mend um, an old merino t-shirt, which was my first and still my my best love hiking t-shirt. It's been many places with me over the last 15 years and it's wearing thin. So I need to think about the quality of the stitching where the wear is because it's where the buckle on my backpack rubs. If I put some hand spun silk in there, that's going to wear fuzzy quite quickly. If I patched it with fabric, that would interfere with the movement of the knitwear. So I think about all those things and then I make some decisions. And in this case, I decided I love that T-shirt so much that I will use handspun silk thread on it because it's worth it. Um, I looked at the stitch patterns. Normally, in some cases, I've, I've mended a lot of sweatshirts using weaving drafts, things like goose eye twill. You can mend sweatshirt fabric and other knitwear by using the ribbing in the knitwear as if it were warp yarns and your embroidery thread, whatever it is, is the weft. And for this, I thought I would try some Japanese stitching. I've done quite a lot of the weaving draft stuff. So I'm using a technique that I think is pronounced hitomizashi, which is a single stitch sashiko repair. And it's changed the hand of the fabric a bit. It's a bit stiffer. But I think that won't necessarily be a bad thing across my stomach. 
we shall have to see. I think it will make that bit of fabric wear better. Um, I, I don't know. I can always fix it again. I have the skills. And do you always spin the yarns that you use for mending? Um, yes, I say tentatively because it feels a bit like showing off. But for me, it's about the, the value of the textile to me emotionally and physically. And my time, it takes me very little time to hand spin yarn for this. And so it's worth it. I have, I have better control over the colors. I love the I love the look of silk against wool, and um, there is a certain satisfaction from working with hand spun thread, even on a machine spun machine knit thing. It's it's adding value to that, and so yeah. And uh, you did a, a project for spinoff summer 2019 that at first seems very different. You wrote about the, the Casimir insanity, I believe it was. <laughs> um, can you tell us how that came to be and, and, and about that project generally? It, it came about because in about 2014, I was invited to the Victoria and Albert Museum Cloth, Cloth Workers Centre to work with a team of other textile workers and historians trying to help the historians understand some of the problems that they'd noticed in their historical documents, historical documents relating to the cloth industry. Um, and there I saw in a book from, I think it was about 1795, this amazing sample of fabric called a Casimir. And it was particularly interesting because although it was a, a fold fabric, the moths had been at it and eaten away some of the fulling so I could see the structure. It was a twill. And it, it was extremely thin. I peered sideways at it and I did have some really blurry cell phone pictures trying to remind myself how thin it was. It, it seemed a very fine fabric for its purpose. I thought such things were thicker. And after that day, I went and did some Googling and discovered more about it. And it was, in fact, patented. And that was intriguing. I didn't even think that fabrics, I never thought that fabrics could be patented. And I got a copy of the patent from the, um, the British Library, who were very kind about it. And the, the Casimir insanity was at this point, we were actually preparing to leave the UK to come back to Canada for various reasons. So I was trying to do this research and work out what fibres to use and um, get ready to sell off most of the household and pack the rest all at the same time. So I was perhaps a little bit late handing in the samples. The, the Casimir was an innovative fabric in that it was very, very flexible, spun in a different way from the, the earlier broadcloths, which were thicker and harder wearing. And... So it was a challenge. It was spun from imported wools, Spanish merinos, rather than the traditional English wools used by the English industry at that time. So I got some merino, and I talked to a chap, uh, a reenactor supplier who makes this stuff, and he suggested a starting point of about 9,000 yards per pound. And I spun 9,000 yards per pound, and it was in that awkward area where the spinning it thinner would have been easier, Spinning it thicker would have been easier. It took a lot of sampling to work out where that was. 
come up with a thickness that worked. And I spun it and spun it and spun it. And I am only, I am a novice weaver. I am a spinner who weaves, not a weaver. And I suddenly looked at the bobbins I'd spun and thought, I have no idea whether this will be weavable. I had better find out because there really is no point. If you want to, to weave something as a spinner, you'd better find out whether you can weave it before you spin all the fiber you've got. It was wonderful. I put it on the Ashford table loom because that was fast. And it was one of the easiest fabrics I've ever woven. It just turned into this amazing thing. And then there was the lunacy of trying to work out how to full and brush and shear the tiny piece of fabric that it was that you can see in the book. It's ridiculous. Um, but I, I, in fact, I fell in love with one of the, the fabrics a little bit further down the processing thing, which is the, the unfold woolen fabric. And I am, um, one of my long-term projects at the moment is spinning singles because this is all; these are all singles fabrics. Most of the early fabrics, they weren't all singles fabrics, but they largely were because you got a finer fabric weaving singles, and also fabric was what you wanted. You wanted lots of it fast. Why would you put the wool, the yarn? Why would you put something through the wheel three times to spin it, to spin the second ply, and then to ply it if you could get something weavable if you've put it through the wheel once? And so I have this amazing fabric, which is flexible in all directions, in, in, in the diagonal because it's a twill and it's, it was used for breeches largely. Well, it was one of the uses was men's breeches and trousers because it was so flexible that it, it showed off their legs, gentlemen's legs. So at first blush, it doesn't necessarily seem like painstakingly reenacting uh, 18th century cloth <laughs> and visible mending using Japanese-inspired stitching on a T-shirt are all that closely related. Um, I, can, I can understand that, but they are. Mm -hmm. So when I first started spinning, I wanted, I was, I was living in England and I became curious, how did people spin in England before the Industrial Revolution. There isn't a lot of information about that. There are occasional comments that women, in fact, burned their spinning wheels. They were so happy to be able to stop spinning and go into the mills with their friends and earn real cash money to buy a dress off the rack that they knew what they'd get. Um, the only thing I could think of, because I'm not an historian, I'm just a spinner, was to look at historical fabrics so I started looking at, at historic textiles and looking at how they were spun. And that's part of the thing that I truly love, is looking at these things and trying to work out how they were spun, how to make them, because it's interesting. And the more of that I did, and the more spinning I did, the more weaving the did, I did, the more viscerally, is the right word, viscerally aware I became how long it took to make cloth. The investment in years of skill for the spinner, for the weaver, the sheer time needed, the, the skill of the shepherds, the wool processors, the time needed to spin it, to weave it. Cloth was incredibly valuable 
it's it's we we read things about Shakespeare's will or his wife's whoever's will it was. They left their their best gown to so and so, and their second best gown to somebody else. They left their bed linen to people. Cloth had value, and so that's why I got into the mending because cloth has value. The textiles I make as a hand spinner and weaver take me days, weeks. If I'm working only as my spare time, because I do have a, a sort of paying job, they take a long time to make. They're precious, and they took as long. They didn't take as long in the old days, when people had more skill than I do. But they still took time. People didn't just throw things out when they were finished with them. So, I started looking at the mending traditions because that links in with. The spinning and the weaving, and I began to look at the Japanese boro boromono tradition, where, as long as the fabric, the piece of fabric was large enough to wrap a soybean, it was regarded as having value and would be kept at, and used. And also the European tradition, where women, girls in school, were taught to do mending of linens, household linens, because that was a marketable skill. And I started trying these things because you can make interesting textiles. They are aesthetically pleasing, and they also are significant emotionally when you've invested energy in repairing them. So they're beautiful in many ways. Um, they, if there is another thing to do with this, which is the idea. Do you remember the 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 armchair? Journey to Uzbekistan in the Uzbek hat. Yes, that was, uh, I believe that was summer 2014 spinoff. Okay, so when I was doing that, the fabric was one thing. The embroidery stitches affected me in a way I hadn't expected. My mother tried to persuade me to do embroidery when I was a child, and I hated it. But doing the, um, researching the embroidery for the Uzbek hat, it became... I began to understand the importance of stitches themselves. Stitches as, a, as tangible evidence of somebody's love and concern for the wearer of that garment. And the way that in many cultures, we've somewhat lost this, stitches were regarded as having amuletic properties, that, that they were magical. Fundamentally, it was believed the, the Japanese garments uh, Adult garden garments, they're weaving with such that an adult garment has a seam down the center back. And the stitches in that seam are protective of the wearer's back, or that's the old belief. Children's garments don't have that central seam because children are smaller and the weaving width goes from shoulder to shoulder. So instead, they stitch amuletic emblems in the center back of children's garments. They still do that. Um, because the stitches are protective. It's more, I'm not sure they actually believe that, but that's the tradition. And that ties in with the repair of things. It's, I'm becoming, it's one of the directions in which I'm going at the moment is, is becoming interested in this belief, seems to go back a long way, that stitches and handmade things have a certain magic of their very own. Does that make sense? It does. <laughs> Um, and so I'm just going to ask you for one piece. If you could offer another spinner, stitcher, weaver some practical advice, what would it be? Don't wait. 
seriously. I wasted probably close to three years reading books about weaving because I didn't think I could work out how to do it. There weren't many weavers in my area, and I had a loom, for heaven's sake, I had a loom, but I read books about weaving. I didn't try. Your hands, if you want to do something with your hands, you have to do that thing with your hands. It doesn't matter whether you don't think you'll be very good at it. If you never do it, you will never be very good at it. So don't waste time. Life is short. Work out what it is you want to do and just dive in and do it. And this is the same philosophy that led to you having an indigo vat in your small house in England. Yes. <laughs> the one where my husband said the very birds were falling dead from the sky because of the smell. And tell me, what did you have in place of a dining room table? Um, that would be my, my Glamokra eight-shaft countermarch loom. Uh, we ate on our laps. My husband was very good about it. Um, some of our elderly visitors were not, but hey, they didn't come every day. And I would much rather have the loom. It was, that was wonderful. The, there is nothing like, I, this, is, this is, goes back to the do it. Don't waste time, do it. There is absolutely nothing like taking a, some fiber, turning it into yarn, and turning that yarn into cloth to see what you have made with your hands from fiber to cloth. And then spin your own sewing thread. If You can do that. And you've made something which is entirely yours, and it, it didn't exist before you did that. It's a fundamental thing, and I, I think we need that sort of feeling of satisfaction today in our lives. So you've started uh, teaching students about visible mending. I did. And um, what sort of things do you start them off with? I find this really difficult. I, I, want, I want my students in those classes to take away an enthusiasm for what I'm teaching them so that they have to find time to finish the project that they're working on in their lives because we have very little time in our lives, some of us. Um, but the students often want to finish a project that they can take away with them done at the end of the class. And so I've decided what I start them with is sashko stitching, uh, something, it's, oft, it's generally a pre-printed pre coaster size thing. And we talk about, I talk a little bit about the meaning of stitching and then the, the sashko stitches traditionally should look like Japanese short grain rice, which is not something many people have seen. So I have a little bag of short grain rice that I pass around so they can see what their stitches should look like. We start with the sashko stitching. Um, I can give them, I've got a, a pre-printed coaster kit and some sashko thread and we talk about how to do the stitches. Very different technique to European stitchery. And the stitches are supposed to look like grains of Japanese short grain rice. I have a little plastic bag of rice and we pass it around so they can see that. And we talk about what it is that is attractive about Japanese textiles. I don't know many people who don't find something attractive about the Japanese textiles. And partly it's, it's the restricted palette, the blueness. And there are historical reasons for the blueness. The, 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 there were sumptuary laws restricting the use of different colors. Uh, it's, it's hard to find that variety of blue 
in fabrics these days when you're working from the principle of reusing stuff. Thrift store fabrics, blue jeans are blue, but a lot of the other stuff isn't. So I have... <laughs> I have a bag which holds approximately, um, it's about a half a metre cube full of thrift store fabrics. And we pick out examples of restricted palettes and lay out um, a table mat sized area and they then stitch that. And we talk about composition so that they can get a feel for working with colour or choosing not to work with colour. It's a, it's a different set of problems to anything I've ever worked with before. It's a real challenge. Um, not everybody looks at colour in the same way. And that's one of the, the really wonderful things about teaching a class is that you can, I can encourage the students to go around and look at each other's work. And sometimes somebody else's work will validate what they've been doing. And sometimes they can look at somebody else's work and go, I'd never thought of using colours in that way. And it's all good because everybody likes what they're doing. And I've learned so much by doing this about color use. And you told me that the only uh, dye that you're interested in working with, natural or synthetic, is indigo. Yep, it's absolutely right. I've, I did a little bit of acid dyeing and I got lots of colors and it, life is too short for that. I love, I love blue, I love the smell of indigo, I love the indigo tradition, and so I'm going to focus on that. I, I have, my husband would, would probably describe this more graphically, I do like messy, smelly things. And so I'm very fond of the very idea of the most traditional type of indigo vat, which is politely known as a sig vat, but basically it's a fermented urine vat. It relies on the, the ammonia that comes out of old urine. And I've tried several I'm working my way through every kind of indigo vat I can think of and am amazed by the variety of different shades of blue I get from the different vats. I've just recently, this about three weeks ago, tried a ferrous sulfate vat, which gives a completely different blue from the thiox vat, which is itself completely different from the fermented indigo, the fermented urine vat, and they're all blue and they're all wonderful. And then if you really want to get messy and not so smelly, grow Japanese indigo and play with the leaves. It's, it's so much fun. Life, life for grown-ups, often I think perhaps for grown-up women in particular, lacks a lot of opportunities for fun. Uh, we don't often get to not so much unleash our creativity, but just be vaguely silly. And things like the Japanese leaf that offers that opportunity. We can be creative, we don't have to invest a lot of time in it, and we can be a little bit messy and it's perfectly justified. And at the end of it, you get this amazing shade of turquoise blue. It's wonderful. Nothing, nothing not to like. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for sitting down with me and I'll let you get back to your stitching. Thank you so much, it's such a pleasure. 